Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Medicine Forward, a grassroots impact network elevating the voice of physician change leaders. Medicine Forward is dedicated to creating a brighter future for healthcare by fostering collaboration, innovation, and positive change within the medical community. With a strong commitment to improving the human patient physician relationship, Medicine Forward brings together forward thinking physicians, healthcare leaders, and change makers to tackle the most pressing challenges in healthcare today. Their initiatives span advocacy, education, and community engagement, all driven by the shared goal of creating a healthier and more equitable healthcare system. As a trusted sponsor of our podcast, Medicine Forward exemplifies their mission to promote meaningful dialogue, facilitate interdisciplinary collaboration, and inspire innovative solutions for a healthier world. We're honored to have Medicine Forward as a partner in our journey to explore the latest developments and insights in healthcare. To learn more about Medicine Forward and their work, visit their website at medicineforward.org. Join us in supporting this remarkable organization as they continue to drive positive change and transformation in healthcare. Welcome to the Ripple of Change podcast, searching for our quadruple aim, where we highlight, celebrate, and extol others creating positive change in healthcare and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Todd R. Otten. Today's topic is chief wellness officers. But before I introduce my guests, I'm going to go off script already and talk about the fourth component of our quadruple aim, which revolves around wellness. In that fourth component, I use the P word. I'm not going to say it in this episode because it's triggering for some. And I'm going to do my best to potentially morph that into a different word. So ripples of change are already affecting me. If you have no idea what I'm talking about with the P word, then perhaps you need to pick up the book and read it. It's called Ripple of Change. On that note, I am joined today by two amazing individuals, Jillian Rigert and Jennifer Scher, both physicians who are in the roles of wellness officers rather and or have trained for it. So I'm thrilled to have them here to talk about the role of chief wellness officer. Now it's my job to shut up and let Jillian take over. Oh, well, thank you so much, Todd, for having us both. I'm delighted. And of course, just as an icebreaker, I mean, I have a few questions I want to ask you both. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Well, I'm a big fan of Spider-Man. So if I could shoot webs out of my wrists like he does and fly around between buildings, that'd be really cool. Mm, nice, nice. How about you, Jen? That's a good question. I'd love a lot of superpowers. I think being put on the spot, the first one I would take is to be able to be invisible. Mm. I think I really love to be the fly on the wall and sort of, I would just sort of get the big picture of what's going on. So I would pick that for today. This is you know, intriguing. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to, you know what, can I change my answer? I don't know. I, Maybe you can have an abundance. I, I, I want to use that one too. Let's, okay. Invisible. It's, it's interesting. I was thinking of like that, you know, the bubble boy who has the safety bubble. I would like to create some path where no matter where you're at, you can create a bubble of safety. Mm. That's funny. I use that sort of strategy as a 
wellness sort of meditative kind of technique where I envision putting a bubble around myself when I walk into stressful situations. Yes, I do the same thing, which is why I use exactly in order. Yeah. When you don't have psychological safety within your environment, I found that having this creation inside your head, of course, if your physical safety is compromised, you need a different strategy. But if it's something like your emotional boundaries or your, your, your mindset needs to be protected, then that I can definitely see how that superpowers is very helpful. Yeah. A little bit more of a practical question I'll only ask you so that it doesn't take up the whole episode here today. But if you had a whole day all to yourself, what would you do? Oh, wow. If I had a whole day all to myself, what would I do? It actually depends upon the context of what I had been doing before or after, right? So if I'm just coming off of a really busy time, then I would just completely unplug and spend the day in nature, alone, reading, you know, things like that. If I've had a quiet time, then I would do something adventurous. I really mm -hmm. need those those ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's your side. Yeah. I, I, it might depend on the day I was golf came to mind for sure. I've definitely golfed by myself for extended periods and, and I've always enjoyed the, the challenge of that game, uh, in a solo perspective. Um, but I also do like, uh, doing picking and antiquing. So I might, I might just drive around and look at people's garbage and see if there's any treasures in there <laughs> my wife would probably not be thrilled with that answer if that is i love that you shared it though it's nice and it, it's interesting too because a lot of us would want that downtime i like how jen kind of demonstrated it really depends right sometimes we're craving downtime completely by ourselves sometimes we would say you know i've always had this dream of doing airbnb hopping and go to different coffee shops and observing the culture yeah, especially with my new invisibility power. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Dr. Sherrod, thank you so much. You're kind of in the spotlight today. So uh, people... please call me Jen, please. <laughs> okay, well, let's hear for people who haven't yet met you or may not know about you. Let's hear a little bit more about you. Sure. Uh, I am a pediatrician. And I think that's my primary role. I'm a pediatrician in a very large... Uh, pediatrics practice in New York. We're a group without walls. It's called Allied Physicians Group. And we have about 36 individual locations. And I see patients uh, typically twice a week. And then I work as the chief wellness officer for the overall company. Uh, in addition to that, I do some podcasting like this, similar to this, and I practice as a coach, physician coach. I do it largely internally for the, for the, the physicians within the company, um, but I do occasionally, um, ha I, I won't keep more than a panel of one or two private clients as well. And what is your podcast? Oh, it's called Reinventing the White Coat. Interesting. Yeah. I with the... Um, physicians, actually similar to you, Jillian, <laughs> who are continuously reinventing themselves in order mm. to flourish and thrive instead of burnout, as well as innovative healthcare leaders who are trying to make the environment just a bit less toxic so that they're 
uh, physicians and all clinicians actually can thrive. That is beautiful. I, I'm going to chime in. It, 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 reinventing the white coat, I, I see I, it's a little ironic for me because I probably ditched it um, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I got progressively more casual uh, as I was seeing patients. And, and, you know, and as a family physician, I, I think for the most part, you can kind of get away with that because you get to know people and you've known them for decades and, and probably the same for you, Jen, to a certain mm -hmm. extent. Um, but it reminds me of a story where I, I think I was wearing you know, nice jeans and some dress shoes and maybe a polo shirt or a dress shirt. I don't know. And we had been taken over by a big system. And uh, one of the VPs came in and said, you know, uh, it's against policy to to wear jeans to see patients. And I just looked at him straight in the eye and said, okay, I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> um, but the reason I say that, I think, is that, you know, there's a lot of fear out there in terms of pushing back at times. Um, and I think some of the things that you're doing in your work, particularly with that internal coaching, that's amazing. Uh, and that's a resource that is so valuable for your colleagues. So brilliant stuff. Sorry, I interrupted Jillian. Sometimes I can't help myself. I love the interruptions. It's really nice. And also uh, my program director, when I started in oral surgery, he used to wear an athletic you know, quarter zip. And I love that he didn't ever wear a white coat. It made him very relatable. He had a lot of young patients for orthognathic surgeries, and he wore what made him feel comfortable. And I find that when I did my interviews, it was intriguing because every single person had a black suit on. And I did not, my first interview, and then I had to shape up and wear what everyone else was. And I'm like, wow, we lose ourselves in the standardization of a certain look, mm. and then we can't authentically express ourselves. And so I really appreciate that you stood up for what you felt was best for you at the time. And for this chief wellness officer, you know, we hear wellness and there's some, we talked, we heard Todd talk about the P word being triggering. Wellness can be triggering because a lot of times people are considering it's the self-care, it's the, mm -hmm. you know, victim blaming, but in the chief wellness officer aspect, it's a lot more comprehensive. And I would love for you to share, what does the wellness component mean from the chief wellness officer's perspective? Right, Jillian, you are so right. And there is a place for that individual wellness where everybody finds what they need to, to support themselves, whether it's the yoga class or the whatever. But that is not what this is about. This is a much more um, comprehensive approach at whatever institution you're at. So for healthcare, it is the chief wellness officer is putting the well-being of its physicians and all clinicians um, up there, front and center, along with the profits, along with the operations. In my mind, it's above everything, but company-wise, it's at an even, even playing field. Um, so a chief wellness officer sits at the table when the policies are being created and, and raises, you know, raising my hand, what is that policy going to do to our people? What is that going to do to that? You know, and um, it not that many organizations have this role yet. I don't think it's too standardized yet. You can kind of define it. If you ask 10 chief wellness officers, they probably have 10 different jobs at their institutions because it's such a different, a new um, designation. I love that you said that because going through the program, I went through the Institute of Physician Wellness program and there each of us came from a different institution. So every time that we created this 
plan and proposal for our institution and organization go completely different depending yeah. on the needs and if you're doing you know how much clinical time you're going to maintain and you know how much it, it pretty much depends because this role could be full-time you have a big institution a lot of times you know people are wanting to maintain being at the forefront having clinical time for you know they value clinical time but also to feel like they have uh, a little bit more sometimes it can be credibility or interpretation based off of maintaining that boots on ground type of approach mm -hmm. Um, and then in our model, physician wellness and what we were going for, it had kind of four attributes, which was the flow of the practice, which you can consider like the financial aspects, personal optimization, which we consider the, you know, the self-care being part of that, but also within our um, professional flow of practice, how that's impacting you. And then professional development, and then the whole culture of well-being. Like, yeah. is this system creating a culture of psychological safety and as you said putting the physician wellness at the forefront right and i always go back to that original you know the christina maslock research where she talks about the canary in the coal mine mm -hmm. and uh, we really do need to focus on the plant and the operations and the structural um obstacles that the um the clinicians are faced with every day, 100%. But then we also do need to focus on the people. Professional development is a huge thing. I, f I have a, a leadership program, and the, that's where the leadership and the coaching and, uh, and the individual wellness all come in. Actually, at our, our company, we actually have, which is really unusual, we've had a chief experience officer mm -hmm. for a very long time. And she's been focused on culture in general, but it was largely focused on the patient. So the chief wellness officer now is the complement to that, really focusing internally on the people who work there. Well, and is you, you, uh, I know this is audio, so people can't see that I'm ready to jump out of my chair with excitement listening to this and, and potentially would give uh, both of these wonderful individuals a virtual hug, if you will, for for their comments, because this is brilliant stuff. You know, wellness is integral to delivering uh, op optimal care for the patient. It, it, it has to be there. And it has been, in many instances, ignored for way too long. It cannot be lip service. It cannot be a box that is checked. It is a must. We are in a crisis in this country on many levels, and we don't need to get into that. So I applaud both of you for what you just said. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you. And maybe to double click on it just for a second, one thought is protected time. I was literally texting with an internal medicine colleague last night at about 10 p.m. He was doing charting. He had pajama time still at 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. That is insane. That is unacceptable. That institution needs to compensate those providers appropriately with protected time so they can get their charting done and enjoy their families. Otherwise, they're not going to stay. You know, they're, they're going to leave. Um, right. Bottom line. So, all right, enough for me. I'll shut up again. <laughs> Jen, I would like to know, what did your journey into this role of chief wellness officer look like? My my journey was sort of organic. I, I started at Allied and I was... A new member and I became very active. I've always been active, wanting to be involved in the decisions that are being made about my life. So I joined into the various committees and we are a physician run organization. So the physicians run the committees and 
I became active and I, I ended up moving into the chief medical officer role, which I served for, I think, probably around five years. But my my angle with chief medical officer was always more um, naturally wellness-based. <laughs> there wasn't such a thing as a chief wellness officer, really, but I would be called upon uh, to talk with physicians who, at Todd, for your example, weren't closing their charts in 48 hours, and I was supposed to come in and discipline them, and I would always give a, wait a minute, take a time out. Do you really think this doctor wants to be doing pajama time? What's going on? How can we support them? And and so when I, I think what finally pushed me into the official chief wellness officers that COVID, going through COVID as chief medical officer kind of pushed me over the edge. I was like, I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> we need two different people. We need a, a medical sort of focused on policy procedure. Um, and, and then we also equally important, it's too much for one person to do both of it. And my skill set and interest and passion really lies on the wellness side. So I pitched it to my CEO who bought it and uh we've been kind of evolving it and growing it to see what's working and what's not over time it's been a year now that's fantastic and when we were doing the pitch a big part of our program was understanding the communication you said your priority is physician wellness and when we speak to people whose priority includes financial aspects of the mm -hmm. institution how did you collect data or were you able to communicate in a way that everyone's ears would perk up Right. And I think Todd's example is perfect. People will leave. It is there. And I don't have the data in front of me, but it's there is a dollar amount to finding a new physician. Do you know it, Todd? Uh, I, I might. Uh, for those that are listening, I was raising my hand so I could chime in. Um, <laughs> so it's roughly a half a million to a million dollars, depending on what uh, resource you're looking at to replace one physician. And actually in the book, I make the case that if a wellness officer can retain one physician in a five-year period, that position will have paid for itself. But imagine if you retain two or three or 10 or 20, my goodness, what kind of an ROI is that? To me, that pitch should be pretty straightforward. Right, but how do you measure? I would say it, it's, it's like trying to uh, predict the bomb that never went off or the disease that never occurred because of the vaccine. How do you know for sure how many clinicians you have actually saved, right? Well, that's, yeah, Jen, I think that's a good point, but you could go back retrospectively for sure and see what the turnover has been, mm -hmm. what the average tenure has been, and then look at that going forward and see what the difference is. Um, you know, it, but the positive benefits beyond just retention are innumerable. Um, you know, the, the negative ripple effect of a physician that's struggling is is not good, as everyone is aware. Um, and so there are tons of metrics you could start to tease out, but I think they need to be individualized for your institution. There isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all regarding this. Right. Um, and also, you, um, Jillian brought up earlier the uh, victim, I think the victim mindset and and I think in healthcare, we have a perfect storm where we have individuals who go into it who tend to be givers and uh, institutions that are takers. And it is really uh, a perfect storm that it's the, the ripple of change, as you talk about, is very slow. 
And so we really, really do need to empower our people to push back a little bit and to stand up for themselves. I actually am in the middle of reading, do you ever read Adam Grant's uh, Give and Take? I haven't read that one. So I'm well. just in the middle of it and, and he, he right before, during my sort of fake commute this morning while I'm walking my dog, I was listening to the, the pod, uh -huh. to, listening to the book. Um, he's talking about how givers feel like um, protecting themselves is the opposite end of the spectrum, right? So that I, I can either give to others or myself. But he talks about it as it's more of a yes and, and it's something we we always talk about, but the way he described it kind of gave me like a bit of an aha moment, right? I can be a giver, but it's a completely different spectrum. There are givers who are givers, but don't give to themselves. And then there are ones that also give to others and protect themselves. And it's the ones that do the yes and who are the ones that flourish. That resonates with what Brene Brown said. I had the opportunity to hear her speak, and it's like sometimes just hearing her, I was reading her words over and over, but I went actually to listen to her, and they just hit differently. And she, I give two things that she really were takeaways from what she said during this conversation. She said uh, what she found in her research at the core of the people that she found with the highest levels of mental toughness was actually self-compassion, mm -hmm. which is very deficient in our healthcare professions. And the people who were sustainably able to give compassion for others are the ones that had firm boundaries. And that's yeah. highlighting exactly what you just yeah, said. Exactly. And I love Brene Brown. <laughs> Me too. I moved to Houston. I was like, I'm moving to Houston so I can be in her atmosphere so I can find her. And then they had a conference and she was the keynote speaker. And I went to that and then I you know, self-care myself away from the conference. <laughs> and, you know, you pick your priorities, but it it's uh, profound in how easily they can say something so succinctly and help you to rethink. I know that Adam Grant has that Think Again book. Yeah, it's so good. Like, re it's reclaiming the narrative on things and deconstructing, like, where did I learn that? And how did it serve me? And how is it no longer serving me? Yeah, I mean, it is so ingrained in us as going through medical school and residency uh, to put everybody first and not to talk about anything related to business or money and to just really focus on the mission um, at all costs. And it's hard to, it's hard for individuals to pull back and and develop those boundaries, but it is, more and more important as the world becomes more demanding. That that this is so fascinating because it wasn't until I went through pretty significant burnout um, that I got very good at the power of no. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the reasons why my most recent office flourished and really lived our quadruple aim was because we would have mandates that would come down you know, from the C-suite, if you will. And I'm like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. And I'm going to fight for what's right. You know, and part of that was actually protected time, you know, for a brief window on a Friday afternoon. We had somebody taking calls, answering messages, and filling in, you know, filling refills and that kind of thing. But there was about a three-hour window window every Friday where we were not seeing patients. So so the provider uh, shoot. So the P-word individuals could catch up. <laughs> oh, geez. But you know, but the balance to it was um 
we we had evening hours monday tuesday wednesday and thursday basically the office was open 12 hours four days a week and they kept pushing for this friday afternoon i'm like you've got to be kidding me like enough is enough and mm -hmm. i i wouldn't give in um so there you go the power on now and that's essential right because i always said that the reward for good work is more work right and why wouldn't they take it you have to know your boundaries though before you can put up the no <laughs> you have to become clear with yourself that's sort of where the, the coaching comes in and really getting to know what's important to you it's different for different people right mm -hmm. and at different times of our life and yeah. understand when we are setting boundaries or you may not know where your boundaries are until they've been crossed and you right. feel this resentment and frustration and like you said working with somebody like what is going on and the discomfort of setting boundaries when you're not used to it that I goes into brene go back to brene brown right that yeah. feeling did you read that feelings book that she did i mean your feelings are your symptoms Yes, Our symptoms and what is causing them. We have to start paying attention to how we feel and what it what it means, and then trying to make plans to to address it at the root cause. And a lot of us laugh, uh, which isn't this is not funny, but it's true, is that we are often not allowing ourselves to feel our feelings because they're so uncomfortable. Right, and in deep stages of burnout or emotional exhaustion, moral injury, whatever people want to call it, whatever they're going through is you could feel quite numb, dissociated yeah. from self in order to make it through. So I think that's a huge part of the healing journey is learning where are you at? What support do you need to become more in tune with your body knowing that reconnecting can be quite uncomfortable mm -hmm. um, and then navigate at a pace that's supportive um, because I, I, I personally am like a all or nothing. I flood myself. And so part of my journey has been having somebody to be like, okay, we're going to step it. So we're going to calm it down, step it yeah. slower. Cause I kept shooting my nervous system. It's just like, right. I just wanted to do everything all at once and it's not sustainable. And today more than ever, I mean, we've always as a, as a human race always sort of had that tendency. If you're, I mean, that's emotional eating, right? But with so with your phone in your hand, when was the last time you were actually bored? There's no, there is zero, I mean, children these days, and this comes back to my pediatric roots, I, I feel terrible for them. They don't even know what it's like. That's where all the creative ideas come from, mm -hmm. being bored. There is zero discomfort. The second there's discomfort, and as parents, we always want our kids to be happy. Of course, we want our kids to be happy, but you have to go through pain and discomfort at times in order to live the full exist the, the full experience of life. Yeah, there's a lot of work from Arthur Brooks on happy, happiness, mm -hmm. being happy and like what does it actually mean for people and he says it's not a destination. You yeah. can't actually be happy, but you can be happier. Mm -hmm. And to your point of why in order he's, it it would be detrimental to our well-being if we were always striving for these positive emotions and not really sitting with the full spectrum of what it is to be human. Right, and you can't feel happy without having a contrast of sad, right? Well, this is uh, stupendous. 
and I just wanted to use that word. So there, there it is. <laughs> uh, how about we do a ripple challenge question? And then we probably uh, have time for maybe one or two more questions and then some final thoughts along those lines. So I'm going to offer a ripple challenge question here. Um, pets, question mark. Uh, everyone knows I have a dog if they know me because he's all over social media. He used to be the co-host of my pod of my YouTube channel, but I have a dog named Reese. He's a cockapoo and he is a delightful king of my world. Oh, I have a cockapoo also. <laughs> Her name okay. is Mixie. And I will say that I grew up with the dog, but as an adult, I never had a dog until I had kids. I decided I wanted my kids to be kids that grew up with a dog. I didn't feel the need for one as an adult until I was a mom and I wanted kids who grew up with a dog. But I'll tell you, it is my dog, any dog. It, it literally bring presents into your, into the room. I mean, the pure joy that they bring when you walk in or just sitting in the relaxing. I mean, it is, I feel like they, dog, pets are a blessing. Well, you're both going to find this kind of ironic and funny, I suppose. So as a, as a paper boy, I think I was bit by a dog five or six times. Um, so I'm probably on the other end of the spectrum with uh, petrified. Uh, yeah. So uh, to a certain extent at times, yes, if I'm out running and a dog barks, I tend to jump. Um, so we have an aquarium um, or, you know, saltwater, big saltwater aquarium uh, with Dory and Nemo. And, and then my daughter takes care of the freshwater one downstairs and she does a wonderful job. So, so Todd, I'll tell you, my daughter also had an experience with a dog, like a PTSD sort of experience with a dog. And it was getting in the way of her life. She was avoiding going to people's houses and stuff with dogs. So we decided we took her to um, somebody who who did is called brain spotting. It's kind of like EMDR. And after three sessions, she was like, "Let's get a dog." Really? But, yes. It, well, you know what? Want to walk work through that trauma? It's never too late. Well, I, I think my I think my wife might be doing that because somehow we were dog sitting for our relatives all the time. All of a sudden. So we've had all these different dogs in the house and they all want to come sit by me. And I'm mm. like, go play with Natalie. <laughs> Exposure therapy at its finest. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Jillian, why don't you, why don't we go back to a couple questions here? If you yes, will. I would love to. Uh, and we talked a little bit about coaching and I would love to hear how coaching has impacted your life, Jen. So coaching has impacted my life by helping me personally figure out exact, exactly who I am and where my boundaries are and where I want to go. Um, it's been very, very helpful for me to be the coach E. And then I went on to become a coach and I use those same strategies to help people find their purpose and connect with really what they want to be doing. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Like you said, how do you know where your boundaries are if you don't have clarity on what your values are? Right. Yeah. Fantastic. And, you know, we've learned so much along the way. What life lessons do you have now that you wish you could provide your former self? 
Ah, great question. It's funny. I, I frequently ask people that question, but I don't have a, a canned answer for myself. So let me think. Well, for starters, I would say that I don't have regrets. I feel like everything happens and everything led me to where I am today. So I'm happy where I am. And um, but I think the advice I would give my former self is to to try to push through the discomfort more. I, as a child, avoided a lot of things because I was afraid. And I, the biggest regrets, I just said I have no regrets because they got me here. But when I think about the things that I regret, there were things that I didn't do that I wanted to do. So I would um, encourage people to tap into what they're feeling and follow their emotions. On the topic of regrets, I think it's Daniel Pink, if I get his name right, um, has a book on regrets. And I didn't read the book yet, but I was informed of what he teaches in there about the power of regret and learning from it. And it points mm -hmm. you to what you valued. And as you were saying, yes, having regrets, but having them in a way that you're learning and how to apply that to your life now so that you don't continue to have the same regrets. Right. Exactly. Todd, how about you? What lessons would you like to give your former self? Um, oh, there's probably a few, uh, but but uh, like Jen, I think everything has happened for a reason and has gotten me to this place. And I think the reality of it is, I don't, I don't know. Despite having the dream of writing a book, I don't know that that would have happened had some of these events not occurred. Um, I think the power of no is, and we talked about that already, so I'm not going to reiterate that too much, but I think that's so important. I mean, there was a point where I was trying to save the world. I was doing everything at work um, too much, frankly, and I, and I needed some some better boundaries, uh, if you will. Um, you know, and better self-care. Um, we, we've always been taught to put the patient first and, and, and do for others and do for others. And we talked about that continuum of, of being a giver and finding that balance, I think is key. You know, again, if you're not in a good place as a, a physician or another clinician, you're not giving your best. Uh, and it's a shame, you know, the negative ripples that occurred when I was burned out, I, you know, I, I regret some of those things. I lost, I, I lost a good friendship over it and not out of any intent. Um, it was just some unintended consequences and, you know, so yeah, self-care, power of no, maybe not so passive aggressive with my C-suite at times. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, it resonates as you're talking. So one of my biggest catalytic events during surgery when I left, when I chose to leave was that I did not answer a phone call from my ex-boyfriend who I loved dearly at the time. And he ended up passing away, not from a self-induced passing, even though, you know, that the point of saying that is because I couldn't have changed anything, but I didn't answer. And it pointed to the fact that I was living very far out of alignment with my values. And at the time I was facing a critical illness. So when we talk about deathbed regrets, I know what that feels like to look back and be like, what, what was all this for? Mm -hmm. um, and how many of us put our heads down for all these achievements that drive us further away from those relationships, as Todd was just saying, from friendships and what truly matters in your life. So I think the lesson for I like to help people is that society has a lot of values. A lot of those values are going to lead you astray from living a life that's true to yourself and from a life that you find fulfilling and meaningful. Mm -hmm. So allowing ourselves to separate. I like the image of like going alone in a forest 
and just kind of reclaiming the narrative on what it means to live a life that you find purpose and meaningful. Yeah. I'm not sure we're going to have a, a better ending to this show than that. Uh, we could probably try 10 or 20 times, but that was, that was gold. Um, so why don't we, why don't we take this as an opportunity if, if, if each of you have maybe one last thought you want to impart to the audience and, and also just for everyone's knowledge base in the show notes, it'll have uh, links, uh, websites, maybe a little bit of biographical information as well. Um, so if each of you would like to have one more impart, you know, last thought and, and how people can reach out to you and stuff, I, th I think that would be great. Jen, I'll have you go first. Sure. <laughs> All right, let's see. Final words. What would I say? I would say to follow the advice that just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? So take a minute to think about where you are, recommit to your current path. Don't be afraid to change it. Um, and that's that's it. I would say if anybody wanted to reach out or find me, I have a, a website. It's called sharecoaching.com. My name, S-H-A-E-R, coaching.com. And the podcast, you can find the podcast on there as well. So thank you so much for offering to, to share that with people. And if anybody wants to be on it, and you worked out. Yeah, wait. Jillian, you sound like you have a perfect story for it. Yeah, well, I can't wait to listen to it and catch up on it. It sounds delightful <laughs> and to be around people that get it. Where in when I was making the decision to leave surgery, I thought it was just me. And then I'm reading Ripple of Change. I'm like, God, Todd went through this too, you know? Right. And and to be part of this amazing community. So that's part of the lessons I have here today. We've got three individuals here that are part of a community that show that there's strength in numbers and sharing your story. And to take the lessons today, to take a step back, to reflect. And as a coach, I like to help people do less, you know, and, and maybe it's do less in terms of overthinking, do less and removing things from the plate that are busy work, create white space so we can actually be very intentional about how we want to spend our very precious time in life. Um, and I have a YouTube channel called A Life True to You. It's a theme of this conversation, living a life true to yourself, freeing yourself from societal pressures that lead you astray. And my coaching website is also my name, JillianRigertCoaching.com. I thank the two of you. This was wonderful. I hope the audience learned a tremendous amount from this. There's so much gold in the conversation, in my opinion. So thank you, thank you, thank you. One final thought to the audience. What positive ripple of change will you create today? Grab your copy today. Ripple of Change is available in hard, soft, and ebook formats. More information at www.ourquadrupleaim.com. Thanks for listening, and let's turn ripples into waves of lasting change. Stay tuned to this podcast as we search for examples of Our Quadruple Aim.